most heretical podcast about the New Jedi Order. I'm your host, Megan, and with me are my co-hosts, Bria and Rocky. This month, we'll be talking about Agents of Chaos 1, Hero's Trial, by James Lucino, in which Han processes his grief and makes a friend, and a Yusun Vong lady takes the bioengineered spotlight. So grab your villa, tune in, and enjoy the show. Just so you know, we will not be discussing the rest of the New Jedi Order series, so don't worry if you're reading along and don't want spoilers, but do know that we'll be discussing all of today's book, so if you haven't read it yet, just pause the recording, read the book, and then come back and join us. As is tradition, I'm going to start by reading the book summary. Merciless attacks by an invincible alien force have left the New Republic reeling. Dozens of worlds have succumbed to occupation or annihilation, and even the Jedi Knights have tasted defeat. In these darkest of times, the noble Chewbacca is laid to rest, having died as heroically as he lived, and a grief-stricken Han Solo is left to fit the pieces of his shattered life back together before he loses everything. Friends, family, and faith. Remember that name Han Solo, you'll hear it a lot. Refusing help from Leia or Luke, Han becomes the loner he once was, seeking to escape the pain of his partner's death in adventure and revenge. When he learns that an old friend from his smuggling days is operating as a mercenary for the enemy, he sets out to expose the traitor. But Han's investigation uncovers an even greater evil, a sinister conspiracy aimed at the very heart of the New Republic's will and ability to fight, the Jedi. Now Han must face down his inner demons and, with the help of a new and unexpected ally, honor Chewbacca's sacrifice in the only way that matters, by being worthy of it. So, Can, can we pause you... and discuss the friends, family, and faith line? Like, it sounds like something you would find in one of those country stores on a plaque. It, it really yes! does. It's... Especially because he talks about the forest as an ancient religion, it kind of matches... Uh, yeah. What he's said, but I'm not also entirely sure that it's thematically matches the rest. Yeah. Okay, so I a friend's family faith plaque that is in a country store but is made out of Yorick coral, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining like one of those beetles just crawling across the surface of it. Oh, gosh. That's both adorable and horrifying at the same time. <laughs> Hashtag goals. <laughs> so this one's good timing. What kind of feather does even use, though? Is it some kind of an animal? Is it something with tentacles or is it something feathered? Okay, I need Vergery. to stop. <laughs> it's vergery, right? Feather duster? Duh! <laughs> so wait, that's her purpose. I, wait, how, how did you pronounce her name? Vergery? Is that not it? <laughs> That is not how I was saying it at all, but that doesn't mean you're wrong. Rocky, I, I'm do you probably say wrong. I say Verger. Okay, because I said, I always thought Verger. Interesting. Oh, you I didn't know? a pronunciation contest with this whole series. There's no wrong Bri answer. Bria's is really pretty, though. Vergery is much nicer, and it has the word verge in it, which kind of like, you don't know what she's up to. She's on the verge. I like it. I probably just sneezed and some vowels came how... out. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need a count of how many times that I desperately have to avoid saying something spoilery tonight. Yes, we're going to be careful because we love Verger and we can't talk about things. But most of this book is about Han. And 
Well, it's good timing for us to hit this one shortly before Solo, a Star Wars story, comes out, since it's mostly about Han. I think we were all kind of hesitant, because this book, it can be a little slow when it's talking about Han's um, many, many angsts. So, he is dealing with the death of Chewbacca, which is was a critically important point in his life, and is basically what this duology is. It's him slowly... Uh, coming to terms with having to move forward. And it's also about his relationship with Anakin in that he's kind of running from his whole family and he ends up reconciling with Anakin and not so much with Leia, but he's given the choice of returning to his former life as a smuggler or kind of remaining with his family and becoming uh, more loyal to them as the war gets, uh, you know, rages even more. So there were a lot, to me, there was a lot of comparisons here between the Han we've seen in the in the EU and the Han we see in canon, because in canon he also was kind of in and out all the time. He was never, he didn't live at home all the time. He was kind of kept to his nature as someone who liked to fly around the galaxy. And uh, I think we see that here. We see Roa, who, Roa was a complete, like, non-entity to me. I don't know if, if you two, like, have any thoughts about his characterization. He, he seemed more like, he's a, a, like, a door into the smuggler world for Han, right? I kept getting him and Droma confused, not because Droma is not distinct, but because I kept I always forget that Roa's even in this book when I think about it. So I'm just like, oh yeah, it's it's always Droma who's running around with Han, and then it's not. Yeah, me too. I mean, their names, they kind of have the same letters in their names, so... Rin, Roa, I definitely had that happen, but I also realized that a lot of things about how Han was trying to just drown his sorrows in his past... Huh, that's a great plan. But... A lot of that just kind of blended together for me, and then I went, wait, where did this book start? Where, where are we? Oh, right. That was kind of the impression I had. Like, two or three chapters in, I was going, okay, now I remember what happened in this book vaguely. It almost feels like this book should have been taking place around, like, this whole duology should have been taking place simultaneously with the uh, Dark Tide duology. Because I feel like a lot of time has passed, and I want to be like... Han, buddy, <laughs> I need you to talk to your son and your wife and please be something. Yeah, communication is key. At least he's not just drinking himself into a stupor anymore. Now he's actually doing things, but he's not doing the right things. Yeah. And I do like Droma well enough. I think he's entertaining. I do feel part of the reason this book was slow for me was because it was kind of the same things happening over and over. You know, Han, like, found someone he used to know, whether it was Roa or Bosk, and (laughs) sudden Bosk cameo, and then he had to kind of fight his way out, and then latched onto someone else who reminded him of someone from his past. It, It was a bit repetitive to me. Han and Droma's friendship was kind of nice. They, I felt, it felt to me that it was so obvious that Droma was supposed to be almost a symbol of what Han could have been because they finish each other's sentences. They're very, their attitude is like exactly the same. And I could definitely kind of hear Harrison Ford's voice in some of this, which was good. 
I feel like Droma also symbolizes freedom, right? Because he's from a species that's very nomadic and they're always traveling. So he's so... He was what Han needed at this time. Um, they also do trust falls where they meet when they're literally falling out of things. And that kind of comes back at the end where they, you know, they have to, Han, like, pretends to fall into a pit and knows that Droma's going to catch him. So, like, oh, nice, Han's learning to have friends again. But He's trying. <laughs> he is trying. <laughs> also, I'm He's impressed trying. you... Uh... Thought. I'm impressed you read through the line I the little joke I put in the show notes without even blinking. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> a little frozen I'm sorry. Do we, we can go back and do it again if you would like. No, it's okay. I just I'm impressed you just kept reading. You just didn't even you didn't even did not even phase you. <laughs> okay, now the mental image of that as I'm reading the show notes is pretty entertaining. <laughs> For people who can't see the show notes, uh, Megan had written, Droma and Han finish each, sand- or finish each other's sentences, and I wrote sandwiches in the middle of it, because frozen. Yes. And that does remind me, too, of they they probably do, at one point, end up finishing one another's food, because they both go after the same steak in that one scene, so it's also accurate. Yeah. And it's not a good steak, either. No. When they're stuck no. on... What I kept picturing is the Titanic, but is like a space cruise ship that has been retrofitted. Yeah. Um, For Droma, I mean, I know what we all want to actually talk about with this book, but the Rin, are they supposed to basically be like the Romani people, except in space and aliens? I definitely so. And it just like it really kind of rubbed me the wrong way now in reread because it just felt very stereotypical. But at the same time, I don't feel I know enough about it to really comment on it. But it definitely. uh... I agree. I didn't feel like I knew enough to say here's where those comparisons are being made. But I think even in some of the names they use, there is that comparison, and I was kind of like, eh, this is not the greatest thing we could have done. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, eh. But also not entirely unexpected for the Star Wars of the time. Sadly. No, and and done in a sort of tone-deaf, not a malicious way, but a tone-deaf way. Yes, it felt like, in this reread especially, it just really felt, it felt kind of cringy in the sense of, I very much get that this was probably an okay thing to do at some point, but now it just really, eh, Yeah, it's important to acknowledge that it doesn't, I don't think it should have been done this way and hopefully would not be done this way if it was written today. Yeah, I mean, kind of on that note, not quite the same thing, but Megan, you've read Last Shot, right? Yes. Okay. Did you note the line in this read through uh, where Han makes this like totally racist comment about Gamorreans in the bathrooms? Yes. yes. <laughs> Which was like, honestly, my thought was like, that's such like childish humor more than yeah. that well, it, was it was a that- like, speciesist thing. But I see where you're coming from. But I just kept thinking of Last Shot and how Han tried to pull a vaguely, spe- well, a very speciesist thing against Gungans. 
and then got yes. totally <laughs> called on it. So I was like, oh, look at you, Star Wars literature. Look how look how far you've come. And I say yeah. this, by the way, with nothing but love for James Lucino, who is a very excellent author and a very nice human being. But just seeing the progress in Star Wars is is fun. And the Gungan scene in Last Shot is definitely a kind of refreshing scene after a lot of this, you know, even the treatment of Chewbacca is not always, like, he's not always treated as fully human in some of the books. Well, and, I mean... Yeah. He's not, not human. Not considered an equal to the human. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, the, I was using human metaphorically, but maybe I shouldn't done shouldn't have done that either. I've backed myself Listen, into Borsk, a corner now. Borsk Fela is gonna come after you. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> I want to hug Phalia and punch him. I'm not sure in which order. This okay, is always Rocky my feeling about me. him. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Why do you want to hug him? Because he is such a brilliantly well-done total asshole. I love terrible characters who are well done as terrible characters. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, it's I'll been a long day. You get the full unfiltered Rocky. It's cool. Well, I'm sure, yeah, there, a certain character has not shown up yet, but <laughs> we, we live in hope. Um, yes. So Han's kind of Han's trauma, I think that's what it is, is given a lot of time to breathe in this book, and we've talked about why that isn't doesn't read for riveting reading, but when you're not really into that story. But I think also it is a good thing that his um, sort of his flashbacks and his trauma are shown with such detail. Um, do we want to talk any more about the kind of mental health aspect of that? Okay, so in this reread, whatever, I'm pretty open about this. I have PTSD. I've had scary flashbacks on this level. And in this reread, like I put the book down for a moment and I'm just like, wait a minute. Good fictional depiction of what a flashback is like down to how horrifyingly disconcerting they are, even when you know it's all in your head. And I'm thinking, good job there. That is legitimately very well done in its level of absolutely terrifying, disconcerting. And you're watching a movie. It, you're actually there. It's, you know, it's in your head, but the level of rip in reality is so well done. It's so scary. <laughs> so well done. Yeah, and I think that's that's very valuable that it's like he does and and the uh, Chewie's seat, the chair that Chewie sits in, the Falcon, obviously iconic, you know, both inside and outside the universe. And I love how there's that moment where Droma comments on Chewie's seat and Han kind of doesn't want to talk about it and is very like he's always hyper aware of that seat and I, I thought that was a very um I guess I want to say uh generous thing to kind of have Han notice it, it was very like um empathetic maybe yeah I think you're right it's just I, I appreciate I, I appreciate how accurate is that the right word I think they are with describing Han's grief but 
it's rough to read for two books. Yeah, and I think it's also rough because he's handling it in a way in which he pushes away the other people around him. There's a part at the end where he kind of walks right past Leia, like she wants to embrace him and he just walks right past her. And I think part of what's hard about this is that I find myself going like, Han, just like let people help you sometimes. Yeah, there's a point where, there's a couple times where he's kind of awful to Leia. Yeah. And I just want to be like, he even brings up, you know, one of them even brings up Alderaan, and I kind of want to be like, Oof. yeah, like, let's let's remember, she she lost her parents, she lost her entire family, like, she, she does understand what it means to lose people, it might have been a while back, but she, she understands, Han. Like, pushing away your wife and your kids is not a healthy coping mechanism. Especially pushing away your wife who also understands how to deal with grief and trauma and who can probably identify with what you're feeling. Yeah, and he kind of, he uses the falcon almost as a way to get away from talking to her. Like, especially in the end, toward the end, there's a scene where he's very, like, him and Droma are doing very, like, bonding, like, doing mechanical work together on the Falcon, and kind of, they have a little awkwardness, because neither of them can admit how close they are, or how long they're gonna stay together, but it it's right after this scene where he tells Leia that he feels like he's been having, quote, a fling with stability when he lives with her, and I'm just like, Han, you have three children. You have a whole network of people. You have your your brother-in-law. You have a whole bunch of Jedi friends. You have Leia herself here. Like, you have your kids. There's so much for you to... Like, that's not a fling. That, that line really, like, it kind of hurt me. And I feel like it must have hurt Leia. Yeah. And I gotta say, I... So I started reading the book last week, and given that I finished it about an hour before the podcast, um, I, I didn't finish reading it immediately, but I watched The Force Awakens in between, and it's very, very strange seeing seeing that, that, that switch, like how Chewie yes. seems to handle his grief for Han, and how Han handles his grief for Chewie. Granted, different universes and everything, but... That's interesting, wow. though. Mm. Yeah. I never thought of it like that, Chewie handling his grief. Yeah, now that I think of it, that is actually an interesting comparison, contrast. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, a lot of how Han handles his grief almost makes sense to me. Maybe because I feel like I've run into parts of his reaction in, like, just from people around me in life. Because some people do have a tendency to just push everyone away and can actually do some pretty serious damage to their relationships that way. And, like, it's so... I think the reason this book surprise hit me like a ton of bricks this time was how real some of it felt. And that mm. was kind of not what I was expecting. I was expecting, like, the hits like a ton of bricks emotionally from characters processing trauma. I was not expecting that for a few more books down the road. Yeah. That's, um... And I think there's definitely something to be said for letting 
like letting him do self-destructive things because people do that. I think that was seen several times in this book where he kind of, there's this idea that he's throwing himself into danger because he feels like he has to because he has this guilt. And I could identify with that too. Maybe not, you know, it's not something as dramatic as I'm going to run into a war zone with a depleted blaster, but it's like (laughs) these little ways you kind of find to, you know, not to get like too edgy about it, but like little ways you find to sabotage yourself sometimes. Um... Uh, somebody on the on the notes, I don't know who it was, added about uh, the Falcon, about how it was that hard was not to... I like it. Um, <laughs> wrote <laughs> that it was hard not to imagine the solo version of the Falcon, and I agree, and I think I was kind of thinking that, but didn't put it into words. Um, do you want to add anything else about that? Yeah, there's a there's a part towards the start of the book where, where Han's looking at the Falcon and uh, talking, thinking about how, you know, they had, all the museums wanted the Falcon and he had been starting to strip it back to basics and thinking about how it used to look. And as he's saying it, I'm just like, I just couldn't get the image of the Solo, the nice, clean, white, non-Han trashed version of the Falcon looked. And I think that's like, that doesn't necessarily apply to this version of canon, but it's still a really cool image to have in your mind. Yeah, and there were a couple cases, even with what we were talking about before with Han and Leia, too, I was very clearly able to imagine what they looked like in The Force Awakens and kind of transpose that onto this. Yes, my brain, as I read this time, very much had an image of both of them looking much like they do in The Force Awakens, though I keep imagining the Falcon again and again looking a lot like the spaceship equivalent of a frat boy's junky car. (laughs) (laughs) and i just kept on laughing (laughs) have you like if you don't have an answer right away we don't have to spend a lot of time on this but have you fan cast the falcon as a car like what kind would it be (laughs) yes of course i knew it that's why i asked you (laughs) so i've explained this at work because i work with nerds the concept of the millennium falcon car the car that is always broken, doesn't matter what you do, it's always broken, but is truly worryingly fast. And nobody is entirely sure why it's on the road or how it survives all it does and probably should not be on the road, but it's disturbingly fast and lives a lot longer than it should. My mom's terrible old Chrysler minivan was intensely a Millennium Falcon car. That poor thing. Excellent, excellent. I'm glad we have... a lot of, like... 15-ish to 25-ish year old American cars are surprise Millennium Falcon cars. They're not going to die. They're faster than they have any right to be. And doesn't matter what you do. They're just going to keep living. <laughs> My brother was off-roading with a Jeep recently in an area in which he was allowed to do that and said it it was 20 years old. He expected it to die within like an hour and it just would not stop. It just kept going. <laughs> And that, uh, I don't know how how fast it was, but it was tough. If it's the sort of Jeep I'm thinking of, that engine might actually be completely immortal. 
The rest of it's going to rust out, but the rest is, but the engine itself is indestructible. <laughs> it has, no, I'm not going to talk about cars. I will, one, yes, make a fool of myself, and two, topic. it will be a tangent. Okay, so, um, Rocky, the other thing that you wanted to, you made sure to make a note of was Sabak, which I also think oh, yeah. was really great. I was, spoiler warning, I'm writing an article about Sabak right now, so as I was reading this book, I was like, oh, this is super convenient because there's, like, a thorough description of how to play it in this book. Yes! And then kind of the realization that the Rin used it as, like, tarot. Tarot? Tarot? Um, And you brought that up, and so I wanted to hear your thoughts about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, because as I was reading the description of Sabak, I read tarot myself, and all I could think of was... I've totally shuffled a deck like that and just laid out a few cards and been surprised at what pops up for all that I'm highly skeptical about predicting the future of any sort. I've used as like an organize my thoughts and make me think through meanings general enough to make me kind of chew through whatever's on my mind. And I almost saw a lot of that reflected in Han, who is like the galaxy's biggest skeptic. And, and for all that, Droma could be just making shit up and that everything is general enough that it could totally apply to Han at tons of points in his life. It's interesting to see how the system seems so familiar to Tarot, a set of smaller face cards, the major arcana, and a whole bunch of the numbered cards, the ace, ace, two, three, four, and so on, of the suits. And I'm just like, wow, that's actually kind of a cool inspiration source taking a set of cards that seem more like a divination tool in our world and applying them to the rules of a game like poker and it's just like that's kind of a cool thing i wonder is that a a rin specific thing or is that like a thing that happens in all sorts of fun little dark corners of this galaxy where people totally have a deck of sabat cards and sure sure we can tell fortune with these or whatever and not everybody is really aware of that as a thing or like, whoa, maybe I believe in this. No, no, my good luck in Sabak is totally because I know how to read cards as well or something else silly like that. It was kind of cool. Yeah, I think it said that the Rin were supposed to have uh, started it, which was kind of neat. I also kind of liked it as a narrative structure. Like they bring it up later in the book. We're like, oh, like... Elan symbolizes a certain card or something. I thought that was neat. Oh, yes, yes, that's normal. Like, as as a tarot reader, often if you're reading for somebody else, you'll grab a card, whether it's a face card or one of the suits, to represent the person you're reading for. Like, the high priestess representing someone like Elan, or just generally grabbing cards whose meaning or whose look feels kind of like it works with the person you're talking about. And, like... That was the little weird mystical bits like that. I kept having these moments of, I've heard the vaguely silly fan headcanon of, what if Han were force sensitive? (laughs) He's totally force sensitive, whether or not he's aware of it. And as I'm reading this book, I'm like, yeah, actually, I believe it. I really like I like that headcanon in part because it can lead you to the really sad idea of like what if Han had one day had a vision of the future and like tried to change the future and 
all this. I do really like that this is the intersection. This is the faith the back of the book talks about, I guess. The intersection between Han's skepticism and the way the Force keeps kind of trying to intrude on his life a little bit. And it happens at the end of the book, too, where Anakin... They point out specifically that Anakin did not say that he thought the Force had had an influence on Han's decision because, like, you can't say it, but they were all thinking it. So, speaking of Elon, we might transition into talking about the Yusan Vong side of things, unless anyone else has anything <laughs> to add about uh, either Han in this book or... The solo movie or any related uh, related aspects? Um, oh, oh, wait, are we talking about things? Wait. Hmm. Actually, I'll have. just say this. I'll, I'll save what I have for general impressions at the end. Okay. So this introduces our first female... Um, Yusan Vong antagonist, Elan, and her, quote, familiar Verger, and their plan to sneak her into the, the ranks of the Jedi by promising a cure for Mara's disease, and then she will basically inhale toxins onto them. And I definitely found myself kind of rolling my eyes a little bit at the scenes and how she's described as being attractive and how male Yusan Vong are gross, but female Yusan Vong can still be considered attractive by humans because that's how it works. Duh. And yeah, there's just that was so creepy. Okay, that that was that was just like okay, seriously, people, stop thinking with your pants. <laughs> it just seemed like vaguely out of place. Yeah, I did it, appreciate it really that, that at least the other agents were like, really, Showalter, really, like, come on, yes. dude. <laughs> Like, no, no, really. We should not have to have a discussion yeah, about that. Yeah, because Walter is, like, right on the edge of, like, maybe she's attractive, but he's, like, super awkward about it. But yeah, she was the... Like, I would have rather seen that impression of, wow, she's attractive, coming from the male Yuzhan Bong. Well, they did. Like, if it had come from them, I would have been like, cool, have fun. But the fact that it was coming over from humans before she put on the Oogleth Masker just made me go, really? It, it was both, though, did I we think. have to go there? I'm pretty sure it was both because one of the first, actually, the very first note I wrote down about Alan is she got described as a young female of severe beauty. And that's... Which, like, coming from yeah. the Yuzhan yeah. Bong, cool, yeah. whatever. But from the humans, it's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> but I just want to know, like, I don't... I can't believe I'm taking us down this path. How I'm very confused as to how Yusen Vong <laughs> and human beauty standards are the same. The thing is, like, they're not in any work. other part exactly. except where she has to be the femme fatale. It's plot beauty. Uh, it's like a plot shield. Yes, <laughs> plot beauty. Oh yes, my God. because I was reading this and being like, "This is the worst plan." This. No, this is one of the worst plans you could come up with. Is there anyone with two brain cells to rub together who doesn't realize that something's fishy about her defense? Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> the, can, that I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and I do want to talk more about Elon. But can that lead into my discussion of how the Peace Brigade, the peace brigade are bad at their job? 
Yes. He's so bad so, at their job, and it's really hilarious. This, the Peace Brigade, you know, kind of start to become the third prong in the war now, or fourth if you count the Chiss, I guess, and fifth if you count the Empire, whatever, they're making a bigger deal now. <laughs> And they are terrible at their job. And I just, uh, there were a couple times where I was just like, I hate them because they're cowards. Like, I could understand if they, like, fetishized the Yushanbang in some way or were like, we agree with this because we also, like, subscribe to this kind of belief or something. If they had, like, a motivation beyond we just want to be on the winning side I would even be more, I would be less, like, scornful of that, but instead, they're just cowards, and they also don't communicate with, like, they mess up the plan, because they don't know that she's supposed to be captured, and I just, I dislike them so much, and I think they are a disappointment to the Empire, the Yusanbong Empire. <laughs> Is there a prize for being that inept? Because if so, they deserve it. I just love how many feelings you have about how terrible they are at betraying everything. <laughs> this might be... Seriously. I mean, my allegiance has not been obscured throughout this, but I think this might be the part where I finally reveal my Yusan Bong sympathies and say that <laughs> they could have won a lot easier without the stupid Peace Brigade. <laughs> Yes, they probably could have, and they would have gotten so much more they done. They would have. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, but uh, I'm going to stay with the New Republic. <laughs> I just, see you on the other side yeah, of the Yeah, I really don't want my furniture getting up and walking away from me while I'm trying to sit I'm on it. I'm just saying, <laughs> if I joined the Yusun Bong, it wouldn't because I thought they were going to win. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, so, geez. let's be honest. Some of us science nerds here would get distracted staring at the cool living it's technology. It's true. It's true. Yeah. And then, meanwhile, Bria just runs away screaming because no, no, and also no. <laughs> because somebody here has to have some common sense. That's why. And we I'm outnumber not you, Bria. <laughs> Listen, I'm the comic. I'm the comic relief on this podcast. I have to survive. <laughs> So I'm gonna run the other way. <laughs> that's that's funny. Um, okay, so uh, going back from my many feelings about the Peace Brigade, um, yes, Verger, we love her. We met her now. Um, she's introduced as a quote familiar, and frankly, I have read this series twice at least. I have read. It too much to remember what I thought of her the first time that I saw her, except that she was a bird-like alien, and I went, oh, that's cool. Um, but I don't really remember whether the impression of a familiar came across, because she has one major conversation with Elon where she kind of, you see, like, what her actual personality is. Um, did either of you have uh, anything you wanted to say about your first impressions of her? I think I actually, so, I, I think I was very far behind and I feel like my first impression was actually reading an insider article about Traitor. Interesting. So you kind of yeah. knew what was. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know how Traitor went. Sorry, I'm trying to tread very carefully here. But like, 
I knew there was something more to her than what the book was telling us, if that's safe enough to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also read this series initially out of order, and I think I read both parts of Agents of Chaos after I read Balance Point, and possibly a little later on than that. But I was also spoiled through about... Um... I know I was definitely spoiled through Star by Star and perhaps a little bit longer. And I also had some idea, well, I'm going to put it in Luke Skywalker's words, this is not going to go the way you (laughs) think. That is the least spoilery way I can put it. But in the reread, I found interesting the use of the word familiar, often like used to refer to a witch's pet, something that's a connection between this world and the supernatural in the same book in which some sort of card reading another thing often associated with magic users of some sort in this world i'm just like wow that is not necessarily out of place but it's certainly an interesting thing to find in a book that is so very centered around han who is basically everyone's favorite skeptic And I'm like, interesting word choice there between familiar and card readings. Because Vergere is depicted as being a little bit more like Alan's servant, someone to talk to, kind of like a living version of like a journal of some sort, like someone she can chatter at freely and openly. Hmm. And also kind of like a servant, minion, someone who can probably do things and get in places that Alan might not be able to. Not acting like some kind of religious or magical feature, but more like, more like your hyper-competent side. <laughs> yeah, and, and she is almost described as a pet. They, I was glad they brought back that mention of the Yusan Vong being, uh, having come to our galaxy 50 years ago. And there was that time they captured other species. They captured some humans, they captured some other aliens, and it just made me wonder about who else were those people? Is there anyone else who's still living among them? And it turns out, I guess Roger had a pretty good spot because Elan was from a highly regarded family, so she probably would have been relatively, like, well, um, well off, if not well taken care of, per se. I thought the word familiar was a little misleading at first because, as far as I know, it's usually used to refer to an animal, to a a cat or something that is not sapient. But she is clearly, like, quite sapient and has her own opinions about the Force, and I like that she kind of... She almost seemed to revere the Force a little bit, where she said that you have to have a certain strength of character, a certain strength of will to use the Force. And then... She makes this decision at the end where it leaves you wondering whether which side she's on, which I really liked. And I think that ending the book that way is really intriguing. It kind of tells you that she's probably coming back eventually. Can I can I ruin things a little bit and go back to the familiar discussion? Yeah, absolutely. Because and, and, and I acknowledge that this is me being me. So when you say familiar, what I always think of first is Salem. From Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Have a little moon on her head. 
I'm okay. I'm now thinking of the gif of Salem like filing his claws. <laughs> yes. yes. I am seeing Berger oh, doing no. this possibly possibly with like a big takeout bag of like five guys burgers and fries <laughs> and she's like doing her nails and eating delicious junk food and probably eating like twice her body weight in food and everyone else is being like seriously Alon did you have to bring her to this meeting <laughs> okay Rocky took like, it a whole lot further than yeah. I was going to <laughs> I love that. It's been a very long day. (laughs) I was with you until you got to the meeting part. So I was imagining that this is like, she goes to like the Jedi temple or something, because that's where she got the five guys, obviously. And and then... then, Does the Jedi temple have a five guys? It's more likely than a world ship. (laughs) I mean, she goes down to the local five cilia and gets her burger. And then she's at a Yusan Zong meeting. <laughs> it's great. Oh my god. I mean, I was gonna. Nope, I can't. I can't even. Um, okay. I mean, I was gonna say it almost makes sense, you know, for her to be seen as being a pet because she is she is sentient, and the Vong Yusan Vong recognize that she's sentient, but she's also a lesser life form to them. True, they would Which have I feel no like problem makes sense here. treating her like one of the um, uh, the reptilian slaves. But still above that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but I really like Rocky's image of Bergerie standing there filing. Does she have claws? What does she have? Cleaning her feathers <laughs> while her uh, eating five guys. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god. <laughs> okay, maybe I should not have said yes to this after like a 10-hour day at work <laughs> cuz my brain is like toast. And it will now Actually Actually no, this is a great idea. This is the best episode we've done for a book I thought was going to be us just being like, yeah. I know. That was a book. I mean, that was that was what I expected, and then we had all of this fun, and it's like, it does almost seem like Verger enjoys not being considered an equal, because in a way, she's being given a little more latitude to do what she wants. Yeah, she's that they're not, trickster. They're kind not of. assuming it. Yeah, they're not assuming that she's as capable or dangerous as they are, so they're not actually watching her as closely as perhaps they should have been. So, despite her talking about the Force, our usual counts don't really apply to this book because we had zero Jedi deaths, zero Nogri deaths, and zero references to Kip Durin being a jerk. So, we can't really talk about any of those things because all things (laughs) are Han in this book. But, um, I'm glad we had fun with Vergery. Um... Because, so, I don't want to bring it, like, right down, because basically this conversation has been more fun than reading a lot of this book was. This, yeah. Yes. Well, we could talk about, wait, I think we skipped a couple things in the notes. We might have, we but we also kind the- of bounced back and forth. That's true. We can we talk about, about, talk about the traitor. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, some more. one of the reveals oh, yeah. was that there is a traitor on Coruscant who helped arrange some of this business. And, um, I don't know, I don't really have too much to add about that, except that that's a good cliffhanger, you know. It's, uh... I will have something to add. 
my in yes, a book or two. Please hold. Yeah, yeah. Like, please hold for future episodes in which we will have all sorts of outstanding things to. to yeah, like but full it's a damn good like, comment, guys. Trust me, it's a good comment. <laughs> like we all know who it is, but I definitely kind of found myself like thinking if I didn't know who it was, like, what would I be theorizing right now? And I think I'd be theorizing Borsk Felaya, although he doesn't, I don't know what his motivation would be, but he just seems to be being set up for a fall. And then... He's Borsk. Yeah. And then, like, maybe someone among the Jedi, but that would be interesting. But as of now, it's the cliffhanger that we shall not drop off the cliff yet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, but hold a few more episodes and... <laughs> yes, please hold. And I will get to it. Yes. But I have yes. to say this... I must say that this book had some gloriously very Star Wars names going on. And I just... It's like they just throw some, some letters at a page and they hope for the best. And no one can pronounce them. But they're still so Star Wars and I love it. I was glad to see the return of Belindy Kalenda. Who yes. just is quietly recurring. That's that's nice. She has like one scene, I think. Yeah. I know I made Oh, I made a note in here somewhere about all of the little callbacks to earlier books, all of the recurring Who else caught the mention of Namchorios, the Death Seed plague, oh. and instantly thought for a moment about the book that came after Darksaber, whose name I can't remember to save my life, and I'm not Planet sure that's Planet of Twilight? Thank you. <laughs> I hate that I know that off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so these I, reference... I probably spent like 10 minutes just sitting there thinking, what was the name of that book? That's eh, probably a good thing I don't remember. What was the name of that book, though? <laughs> just ask Bria next time. Which, speaking of Bria, I was drawing hearts around Bria Theron's name. Yes. Yes! She got mentioned. Bria Theron. <laughs> My girl. There were a lot of references to, like, the Han Solo trilogy, I think, and Planet of Twilight, which I maybe read once ages ago and, like, didn't, and hadn't, I don't think I had read before I read this. So I'll be honest, a lot of this kind of went over in my head where he's like, oh, I remember that thing. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to assume that wasn't, you know, it's got to be an EU thing. Yeah, there was a lot to the uh, the center point, the Yes. Actually, that's the Corellian trilogy, actually. Why Why did they yes. just call it the Centerpoint Station trilogy? That would have made more sense. Mm, because that would have made more sense. <sighs> Damn you, Star Wars. <laughs> At least yeah, it's yes. not Pimarth. <laughs> True. So, um, Bria, you had a good point in your uh, one of your impressions about how the solo apartment feels kind of empty in this book in the rare times Han is there. Oh, yeah. So it just it's actually a uh, a comment on the entire book. It doesn't feel right because it, it doesn't feel like it's part of the series because so far the New Jedi Order has focused more on the the solo kids than anyone else. Like Han and Leia and Luke are there. Well, Han wasn't in the last two books, but the solo kids have usually been at the heart of everything going on. And in this one, Jane is in it for a couple chapters. Anakin's there to, you know, talk to his dad once or twice. I don't even remember Jason being in it for more than like a second. 
and it just doesn't feel like it fits. I agree. It definitely feels like a standalone that was kind of made so that we could get some of Han's emotional journey out of the way to make room for other things later on. Because this is kind of the one, if I remember correctly, the one series that really focuses on him. And also I think it's a chance for people that maybe don't aren't as interested in the Jedi to have a book that's about smugglers, that's about you know, spacers, and that makes it feel very different. Um, I think this is, if I was, you know, just reading this for fun as opposed to for a, you know, I'm going to write a blog post or or something about it, which is also fun, but, you know, if I wasn't reading it for a structure uh, that someone else expected me to do, I would possibly skip this uh, duology. Not to make things less exciting for the next book, but it's not my they personal just, favorite. You know what they should—they should just made it one book. Yes. Yeah. Because this was a surprisingly quick read for. Because I was honestly concerned. I remember my last couple times reading it. It took me a few tries, but especially since I read the series out of order in the first place and I don't feel like I super missed much by reading this one so out of order. And it's also not read it. It's not as long as it could have been for a Lucino book, except for oh, like yeah. the part with the Sabak and occasional moments where he would get really into describing weapons. It didn't like info dump as much as Lucino is is sort of that's his most most uh, I don't was this his first Star Wars book? Was it? Oh, hmm. let me see. I don't Conveniently, know. I have. It was either his Wikipedia first or his second, right here. I think. Huh. And because like, I, I don't want to be like I made. Because huh. oh. he did cloak at deception, yeah. which was the, which was the the Phantom Menace prequel. But I don't know if that came out before this one. I don't know. Because I see a note that I made, I think it was chapter 8 of this book, where I noted that there was basically like a long exposition slash info dump about what we know presently about Yuzhambong technology, which mm-hmm. now in reread, I'm going, oh, this is actually super, super, super helpful. And it's kind of a nice, here's where we all are, here's what we know right now. And I think it was actually a good baseline level because then we start to run into all sorts of civilians slightly clueless intelligence people and all sorts of others who definitely don't have like that baseline info dump and I'm like actually that's kind of convenient and nice it was his first <laughs> Excuse I me. think so huh. um, it looks like this you're right this was his first the James Lucino Wikipedia page is very long and very thorough but if I'm right? <laughs> reading it correctly, cr- that is the Yeah, hey, I'm going by the sidebar. Yeah, and he was friend. He was friends with Brian Daly, who did the Han Solo adventures. So that's like he had that experience going in. That's interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Excuse me. I think I inhaled some of those, some of that toxin. Oh no. <laughs> Don't die. I'm trying. <sighs> well, do yeah, you have so some Berger tears around? Oh, thanks. Um, 
Well, I guess we should probably mention the tears thing. Yeah, I mean, yes. any thoughts? <laughs> like, Roger's magical healing tears, which mostly, it's it's a very, you know, it's a very pulp thing. It reminded me a little bit of the force trees from the canon. Like, of course, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. Why not? But it was also relevant to the plot because it was basically the tool they used to heal Mara, and it was the tool that the narrative used to say, maybe Roger isn't actually bad. Maybe she either is attached to our galaxy because it was her galaxy, or wants to have, like, a good in with the Jedi in case the war tips in their direction or something. There were a lot of reasons for her to, for that to be a good, like, leverage point in the book. But it also adds to that feeling of mystical kind of magic around them. And there's also the possibility, and, and you know, speaking as, like, this is a, a theory, not a reference to the future, just, like, something that I think would be a, a question from this book alone is, are her tears, like, bioengineered? Or are they natural? Or can all of her species do that? Or did the Yushan Vong, like, make her do that? Hmm. I never considered that before. And I don't remember if that's ever actually answered at this point, so yeah, I'm safe. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember. I think I know the answer. Oh. I think I... Mm. And the scene with Mara recovering was... You could tell, like, how emotional that was for the people around her. I still think it's kind of silly that her whole role is to to be sick and be healed. And there's the moment where she, like, rejects monitoring. Kilgul's like, we need to test this for science. And Mara's like, no, you can't. <laughs> just was, give me the damn. Yeah. And I was like, why? It might help you if you, like, just let her monitor you. Why not? I don't know. Don't put that into your mouth, <laughs> Mara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you do... Let the doctor know you did it. Uh, and then Luke uh, takes it. <laughs> Luke, why? Because that's a great because... plan. Actually, that was one of the few Kip scenes we got, was yes. all the Jedi being like, no, we're going to go with you. Like, We'll stand by you for your meeting with these people. Yes. And everyone's just like, it was all very Spartacus. Yes. And like, everybody is just going, this is a terrible plan. This is totally a trap. There is no way Elon is actually a defector. And Luke is like, well, I know oh, this is yeah, almost definitely a trap, scene. but, and it was like, wow, this is really kind of pulpy and over the top, even by the standards of how some of this series goes. This was a moment that made me go, Luke, why? Like, I know you're desperate. I know Mara's been going through a lot, but this has got to be a trap. Yeah. Trap! <laughs> It says trap in big, from bright, Serenity. blinking, glittery lights. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining uh, uh, Elon just holding a sign <laughs> that says trap. Vergeer yeah. totally made a sign, People like, covered the- in glitter glue that says trap and, like, stuck it on Elon's back when she wasn't looking. <laughs> written in Orabesh so she doesn't know what yeah. it says and like everybody else is like well of course it's a trap oh, and Berger's like just so you know <laughs> <laughs> she worked very hard on that sign okay yeah exactly it's what she did when she was probably supposed to have been doing something important yeah <sighs> well if nothing else at least I know that the Lucino books are all uphill from these two 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah, it, it's different from later Lucino books. It's less encyclopedic. But and I think there's goods and bads about that. It's not a... Yeah. Not remarkable. It started a big... A, a, a major career in Star Wars writing, that's for sure. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Star Wars. I love you. <laughs> I love... But also this book. I love how much of a hilarious hot mess this book is at times, and just... For all that it was not always what I anticipated, it was not as bad as I remember it being. It was actually a lot better. And I just had all these moments of, this is totally ridiculous. I mean, this explains a lot about why I fell in love with this series. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, I think you're right. It wasn't as bad as I remember it being. But I also know this is the first book of three of the NJO books that I don't particularly care for that much or that don't catch me as much as the rest of the series does. So I'm just, I've just been kind of dreading us doing these next three or this one and the next two, but... Maybe they'll hold up better than I remember them being. Yeah. Maybe. I have no idea what happened in the second parts of age second part of Agents of Chaos. No, I think I remember a couple things, but Good news, you're gonna find yes, out next we're month. We're gonna find out later. soon. <laughs> exactly. Right. Dun dun dun. <laughs> so, um I think that's it for this week. And as always, you can find us on Twitter. The hashtag is Bongcast. And so, um, Bria, where can people find you online? Uh, so you can find all my assorted Star Wars writings over at Tashi Station. Uh, that's Tashi-Station.net. Uh, I run the geek fashion blog, White Hot Room. And then on Twitter and other social medias, I am Chaos Bria. And you had a StarWars.com publication recently, didn't you? I did. What is it called? It was kind of awesome. Um, I did an interview with Kieran Gillen and Cy Sperrier about their work with Afra and the Dr. Afra comic. Excellent, excellent. So, Rocky, where can people find you? I am Lady Darth Kytus on Twitter, where I rant about plenty of Star Wars, plenty of World of Warcraft, and all sorts of other fun things. And on Tashi Station's podcast of Dice and Droids, I am on there playing Star Wars RPG and being a hilarious troll. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and uh, my home base is on Twitter, at blogfullofwords. Right now, I'm mostly talking about Destiny. So, uh, this podcast is distributed as part of the Tashi Station Network. Um, join us next time when we continue the Agents of Chaos duology and the Yusun Bong make a deal with the Huts. You can read and tweet along with us by using the hashtag Bongcast. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.